Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 15th, 2018. This is episode 2219 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday. Tuesdays are just Jack shows. And I decided to do a show today on food production with wicking beds. As many of you guys know, I've become a real fan of aquaponics over the last couple years, um, really three years, but the last two years especially. I've had some real success with it. But the reality is, you know, if you ask me what the number one thing is I like about aquaponics, <coughs> I, to be completely honest, I'd have to say like really cool water gardens and fish that live in my backyard that I can feed and watch them around and my... My granddaughter gets all excited about them, and I can go out there and throw a hand line in and pull out a couple bluegills the size of my hand and, you know, make some fish tacos. I, I do love that. But that's really not about aquaponics. I had garden ponds before I had real aquaponics stuff going on, you know. And uh, with that in mind, I uh, if you actually ask me, so from a standpoint of aquaponics, what it is, what is it that you love most about aquaponics from a vegetable, a, a plant production side of things? And, and the answer to that would be wicking beds. Wicking beds have, have actually are the thing that made me really become an aquaponics enthusiast. And when I sit back and I think about that, what I realize is something that's pretty self-evident, but maybe people don't really grasp onto it. You don't need to do aquaponics to do wicking beds. Wicking beds are a technology all of their own. They've been used for a very long time. They're very big in permaculture. There's lots of different ways to make them. We can do them as flow-through. We can do them as static. Uh, we can tie them into an aquaponic system. We can build wicking beds that are just wicking beds. And if we think with some forethought, if we ever decide we want to run an aquaponic system or we even just want to do a fish pond, as long as we think ahead of time and you know do things like elevate them and what have you and put in the plumbing right, we can always attach that to the system later on. And wicking beds do so much for you. Kind of my, my, my leading thought, and it'll be my closing thought as we get to the end today and you, after you hear all this, is wicking beds are about 10 times more work than, let's say, a raised bed or in-ground garden in the beginning. When a standpoint of acquiring materials, putting in plumbing, all this stuff, making a soil mix, if you have a, a place with good soil where you can just dig a bed and plant into it, there, there may be 10 times more work. If you don't have that and you're having to build true raised beds and bring in your own soil mix and everything anyway, they're probably five times more work than slapping some boards together, throwing them on the ground, level them, and fill them in. So they're more work, and they definitely cost more to build because either you have a rigid container or a liner or something like that. Um, but but they are less work forever. And that's the best way to put it. They, they are less work forever. Forever, you, you, you will do less work for as long as you garden and grow with wicking beds than you will do without them. And uh, we'll talk about all of that today, ways to mitigate some concerns that people have and stuff like that as well. I'll give you my full breakdown for my fertility program. I'll talk about different types of wicking beds, how you can start out with something simple like a self-watering container garden uh, and move up from there. Uh, keys to good design, flow through versus static we'll talk about today. Again, with fertility, developing and improving your fertility over time. Mineral supplements, all of that stuff. We'll get to all that in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. And we're going to talk about growing mostly vegetables and stuff today. But I'll tell you what, I grow a lot of herbs too. 
And I grow herbs because I believe that herbs are nature's medicine chest. Uh, yesterday, I was uh, putting in some bulkheads to my new aquaponics system, and I did a dumb thing, and I bumped the, the drill with the hole saw on it, and I cut my index finger on my left hand. Uh, not bad. I actually didn't. It was one of those ones where you do it and, uh, with a serrated blade. It hurts, you know. And I didn't even want to look at it for a second because I could have been headed to the ER or something like that to have the tip of my finger reattached. And I looked at it. It was just a, a nick it, right in the crease, though, you know. And that's uh, just, damn it, you know. And it's bleeding pretty good, but it's not deep. It's not in a tendon or nothing. But the first thing I did was go in and put some comfrey salve on it. And I uh, put it on about three times yesterday. I kept working, so I kept putting different Band-Aids on it to keep it from getting stuff in it. What happened? But this morning, from that comfrey, I mean, that cut, and it was a jagged cut. From Again, think of the, the serrations on a hole saw. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's pretty much healed. It's a little painful when you bend it and all because it makes the skin stiff when you have a cut like that. But it, it's basically something that probably could have, not necessarily needed, but could have used a stitch or two. And it's almost like somebody cauterized it. That's the magic of comfrey. And that's one herb that we can grow in our own backyard, make our own preparations for. But sometimes you'll find there's things you can't find or you just want to buy pre-made and what have you. And my go-to source for everything herbal in the United States is Western Botanicals. And when I say in the United States, what I mean is if it's legal and it's herbal in the United States, you will find it at Western Botanicals. From raw herbs to ingredients like beeswax and menthol crystals to make your own preparations to fully made preparations. And if you need any help at all, pick up the phone and call them. Real people that really care will answer the phone in Utah, not in New Delhi, and actually help you with your order, customer service stuff, and things like that. I've had people email me and say, well, like, you said they'll help me, but I called and I asked, what should I take for a headache? And they're like, we can't do that. That's the department of making you sad getting in the way. So you can't call and ask them to basically give you a prescription, but you can find out what you're looking for and say, like, what do you have, that type of thing they can help you with. So it's not that they're not willing to do that. Government. And, you know, they do everything above board, completely legally, et cetera, and they don't make any false claims. And that's what I love about them. That's why I've been happy to work with Western Botanicals for over eight years now. You can learn more at westernbotanicals.com, but remember, you can get their uh, – Discount membership for free as an MSB member. Check your benefits section to learn more about that. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources. That's the company that does what it says and says what it does right in their name. You go to their name, ReadyMadeResources.com, and you find all the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click and buy on their website, sent to you with great service, lightning-fast shipping, and awesome pricing. And again, just like Western Botanicals, this is a small company with real people that really care about you. If you need any help, you pick up the phone, give them a call, you'll get helpful people that will help you with whatever your needs are. And I'll tell you one of the places they really shine is solar, wind, and alternative energy, battery-powered appliances, etc., stuff like that. If you need any help, these guys will give you help that other people will charge you significantly for from consulting. They'll do all that for free because they value your business and want you to choose them. They also have everything that you could want for prepping, from the tactical to the practical to the guns to the gardens and everything in between. You'll find it all where? ReadyMadeResources.com. And with that, let's get into uh, today's episode. Again, I want to talk to you about wicking beds today. And, and there'll be some mentioning here and there of aquaponics. But this is not an aquaponics episode. This is a produce-your-own-food-in-the-easiest-way-possible episode. The reason I'll, I'll you know, invoke the aquaponics meme is because... It is a very good chance that you might build a bunch of wicking beds and then one day say, you know, I'd like a fish pond. 
and that you'll want to tie in that fish pond to your wicking beds. Because once you have wicking beds and you have a fish pond, the two kind of go together. And that would be if it's a true aquaponic situation or you just decide to put a pond in. Now, if you are convinced you'll never do any kind of pond or fish tank or anything like that, you can you can kind of ignore that. But I still think the ways that I'll talk about doing this today are best practice from a maintenance standpoint anyway. So... Just understand, when you hear me mention the aquaponics word, you can want nothing to do with it, and everything here still applies to you. So let's start off with, well, what makes a wicking bed a wicking bed, and why does it rock? I mean, why is it such a good technology? Well, I think it was a wicking bed because it wicks, and that's true, but let's like break the components down of a wicking bed. So to have a wicking bed, we need some sort of container for soil and water, And obviously the water part needs to be a watertight container. Then we need a media to go in there, generally rock. Lava rock is probably among the best, and you can use scrap pipe and stuff. We'll talk about that in a bit. But we need a layer of media that allows water to, 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 to reside there, but yet holds everything up above it. And I've seen people build them with just simply basically a plastic perforated floor with empty space down there. I don't like that as much. During today's episode, I'll explain to you why I prefer a solid media and, again, maybe some scrap pipe or stuff like that. Once we have that, we need something that keeps all of the dirt from going down in there. And there's multiple reasons for this. One is obviously clogging up the works, but another reason is anaerobic. So if we, if we, if we keep things out of there, we keep, we, we keep the soil from becoming anaerobic. So usually we just use, they call it geotex fabric, it's weed blocker is, is the number one thing that we'll use for that. I've also used kind of like nylon, uh, very fine meshed uh, screening like people use on gutters in, in smaller projects as well for, for that. Anything that keeps the soil from going down into the rocks. In many instances we also might want to take something like some rags, old rags, cotton or something like that, and stick that down into the rocks and up through that material so that will be in the soil and help with the wicking action. I haven't found that really necessary. When I build my wicking beds like this, what I generally do is after that layer of geotech fabric, I'll put in about a two-inch layer of perlite. Perlite is incredibly hydroscopic. That means if it's hydrophobic, it, it repels water. Hydroscopic, it absorbs water. And I have found that that layer of perlite uh, is just exceptional for Additionally, keeping that dirt out of that layer, but also for getting that wicking action going up into your soil. Then we need a mix, a soil mix that is friable. Lots of woody materials a good idea. Improvements like uh, peat moss, uh, perlite, things like that. And I'll talk about my actual mix, but all of those good types of things. You want a soil that when it's damp, it's really friable. It means you can pick it up and it just it just feels good in your hand. And then we have a layer of mulch at the top, and those are our layers. Included with all this, though, we need a way for water to go all the way to the bottom of the wicking bed. Not to go in the top, to go in the bottom. And we need a way for when water gets up to a certain level, for it either to drain off into the ground and go away. Let's say if we have a big rain event, 
Or if we're using a pump in our system, whether it's aquaponics or not, we want an overflow that once it raises to a certain level, it goes back into what we would call a sump, which is simply the lowest water tank in the system where a pump resides that recirculates the water. And there can be a sump and a main tank, just a sump tank, a main tank that is a sump, lots of ways that we can do that. But we want to have, if we're doing a circulating system, a stand-up overflow that lets us set our water level And then by controlling the speed of the flow, that level will remain constant. Okay, That's basically what a wicking bed is. Now, why do they rock so much? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is you don't have to worry about irrigation. They're self-irrigating. Uh, even a static wicking bed might be something that, you know, if you don't have any kind of uh, plumb line to it with a float valve or anything, that you go out maybe once every three or four days at the worst part of the year and stick a garden hose in it and fill it up till it overflows, shut it off. Uh, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take care of itself. Assuming you do everything else right that we'll talk about today, that, that's true. But the bigger issue is, one of the things people say that's negative about wicking beds is that the soil's always wet, and plants really do better in a wet and dry cycle. Well, plants have a certain amount of innate intelligence, and the truth is a good wicking bed will remain very consistently moist to dry. Down at the bottom, right at that layer of that perlite or that geotech fabric, it will be very, very wet, and it will become, become progressively less moist as it comes up, But if we do it right, just scratch the soil, and it's in that perfect condition for plants. What this means is that the plants will generally set out the majority of their horizontal roots where they are most happy with the soil condition, and you're not in an anaerobic state. It's not overly wet, so it's not a problem. Um, the, the thing there is, though, soil life likes consistency. And all of the biological things we hope to build up in our soil can exist and stratify themselves in different layers in that bed based on how much moisture they want. And since that, that, that bed never goes dry, it never goes bone dry, that soil life's always happy. The, the consistency and the uniformity there allows all the soil life to find out where it wants to be and do its thing, and then plant roots will stratify where it's got the moisture, and it'll send other roots to where maybe one particular soil organism is producing one particular nutrient that it wants. So we end up in a state of, of homeostasis, where the plants and the, the, the nutrient cycles and everything balances around something that's consistent. And since it's never disturbed, you end up with good soil that stays good soil. And any type of amendments we do work really, really well. If you think about adding something like a, a dry fertilizer to the surface, if we pull back mulch and we shift, shift some dry fertilizer there, there's just enough moisture there to start matriculating that, that fertility into the soil. We get a rain event, a bunch of it goes in, and it kind of spaces out in there. It is just... It is creating this, this environment that gives the system everything that it's looking for and maintains that in a consistent state. And this is why they do so well. If it was just about not needing irrigation, then we could put in drip lines, or we could put in misting sprinklers, or we could put in hedge sprinklers, or we could do something like that, and we would end up with the same results. And we don't. 
We have really good systems that are built on automated irrigation. We have really good systems that don't use any irrigation at all because of where they are, and they don't really need it. But we, we only see this incredible growth, in my experience, having grown vegetables from Florida to Texas and up to Pennsylvania and plenty of places in between with wicking beds. And it's because of that constant state of giving the plant exactly what it wants and letting it find where it wants it. Again, as long as we do everything... Um, that I'm going to talk about today to give enough space for things to do in there. All right, so let's talk about the soil mix. Now, I always get like, well, what's your recipe or whatever? I make soil for a working bed a lot like I, I cook. I use what's available at the time, and I mix it till it feels right, it looks right, it smells right. In general, you can go out and buy any really good potting soil. An organic product would be best, uh, but if you couldn't get it and you were using just a regular potting soil and that potting medium is going to work perfectly because it's designed to be well draining and and water absorbent right so it's going to be hydroscopic but yet it's going to drain so it doesn't become overly wet that's how potting soil is designed so that's kind of what we want to emulate so you can just go buy bag stuff and if you're not doing a lot you can probably afford to do that if you're doing a ton it can get expensive i have a project i'm working on now that might have up to 10 Four foot by four foot by 20 inch deep wicking beds in it. If I went out and bought, you know, potting soil for that, especially an organic product, it would get very expensive very quickly. What I generally do is I make my soil mix from a mixture of compost, woody material, and perlite. Perlite is a little puffed white rock stuff that when you get a, a, a pot overly wet, it annoys you because it floats to the surface. The same stuff that I use for that, that barrier. I'll go to a garden center or the feed store, what have you, and I get a great big bag of perlite for 20 bucks. And we don't need a ton of it, just enough to kind of lighten that soil friability. Um, a, a lot of times, if you go to like a box store or something like that, like a Home Depot Lowe's, you can find a really fine shredded wood mulch. Those That's perfect to add. Um, Home Depot, not Home Depot, Lowe's has a product they call compost. It comes in a blue and white bag. Uh, and, and you might want to you know tear the open end of a bag up and take a look at it to make sure it's the right stuff. But it's really not compost. When I bought it, I was very annoyed. It's very fine wood chips that were not broken down like compost at all. It's like wood chips that would make good compost that hadn't been composted yet. But when I ended up with it, I'm like, this is perfect for that type of a, of a mix. So a finely shredded hardwood mulch is great. Think bog soil but not in the deep, nasty, anaerobic part of the bog, like the edge of forest, where forest transcends the bog, where when you pull that soil up and it just smells good and it just crumbles in your hand. This is what we're trying to emulate and make. So I've made mixes using leaves. I use these live oaks around here, these little leaves. I'll run those over the mower and throw a few handfuls of that in there to feed the soil. Um, I haven't used peat moss, but you certainly could, and it would certainly be a lightning agent. The, the core is made up with bulk compost that I buy by the yard, uh, perlite, and again, woody material, lots of mulch on top. Another thing that I've done that, that helps cut down costs but gives you a really great quality start is go ahead and make that soil mix up I just talked about. Come up from your, your divider and your media till you're about, let's say, six inches to four inches from as high as you want it, and then get a big bag of you know a, a potting mix and cap it with that. 
that creates another layering and after worms and everything get in there over time it's all gonna but it gives you kind of that top layer of that really premium stuff that was pre-mixed for you and then a great deep layer of mulch and you can use wood chips which I like another thing I really like is straw and I'll talk about mulch later and what I do with it but that's that soil mix that we're looking for now we can look at different types of wicking beds and I'm sure there's actually dozens but I'm going to talk about three today to give you a place to start number one uses large rigid containers one of my favorite containers for doing them especially tied into an aquaponics system is 100 gallon Rubbermaid uh, beds or totes. Uh, they're one of the best products in the world for doing something like this. And the reason that they are is they're kind of a sweet spot for cost and they're two feet deep. And when I talk about how much media and how much soil you want, you figure out two feet's a really good depth for a container. But that would be a large, rigid container. But this could be anything that's large and rigid and can hold water and can, you know, either use a uniseal or a bulkhead to allow for drains and stuff like that. Uh, I am the one I just talked about, this new aquaponics system I'm building that may have up to 10 wicking beds in it. They're 4x4x20. Four by four by These are fiberglass tubs that were used to hold molasses for feeding cattle. Um, so that's just a large, rigid container. And so any large, rigid container would be one type of wicking bed. What I really like about them, since they're large and rigid, they're generally easy to build platforms for, so they're easy to elevate. And if you think about like a, a really good, uh, a, a really good, uh, you know, height for working about three feet, but the depth being two, you can see where elevating would be helpful. And with forethought and future planning, if we ever do plan on doing something like adding a fish pond or aquaponics component to a system like that, if we have a two foot container that we bring the top of to about three to three and a half feet, we're going to fill it eight inches with water. Then we bring that system level up to about a foot and a half to two feet-ish from, you know, or I'm sorry, a foot to a foot and a half above grade. And that makes having a place to return it to easier. So it's one of the real, really great reasons to consider, you know, rigid hard containers. We can make the working area very easy to work uh, with about two foot of depth. We can easily bring it up to three feet. Uh, we can have that elevation, and that elevation lets us do other things like service work. If we have clogged pipes or something, you can get under there. It lets us drain the system. So one of the concerns that people have with anything with water in it, but wicking beds being no exception, is, well, if I have wicking beds, and what happens in you know December and January when it freezes and everything breaks? Well, if we can get underneath it and we can pull out that stand-up pipe for the media excluder that's in there, which is basically a bigger pipe that you can stick your hand down and reach the overflow pipe, we can pull that pipe out, it's drained. There's no water. If there's no water, it's not going to freeze. If it happens to rain when it's warm out, uh, it'll drain through like a regular pot at that point, and there's not going to be enough water in the bottom to cause problems during a freeze. And we just don't use them during those months where we have hard freezes and things like that. Or, you know, we can put them inside a greenhouse. We can put uh, uh, cloches over them or whatever we want to do. But in general, you can just drain them and not farm them, just like you don't farm your garden in the coldest part of the year. 
The next is making something I think is a good first step for people, which is self-watering planters of one form or another. There's a lot of these being pre-made now. They're, they're generally fairly expensive for what they are. Uh, I see very, various different versions thereof. Um, there's grow buckets where we just simply take one five-gallon bucket, stick it inside another five-gallon bucket, and the lower bucket becomes the reservoir. Uh, we put a pipe down it and overflow. It's just a miniature version. I like self-watering containers for patio gardening, for backyard gardening, for getting started. Um, there is some limits to them. Unless we plumb them in somehow with some sort of a float valve, which is going to require all of them on a common line to be the same level. Unless we do that, they're not that resilient. And by resilient, I mean that I can, I can walk away from one of my aquaponic systems, and apart from maybe having a nozzle clog, And we're actually working on some ways to automate nozzle cleaning. And that will, at that point, I can walk away for two weeks. I can walk away and everything's just going to keep growing. It might, you know, you might lose some produce or something because it gets too mature or whatever. But you, you don't have to worry about it. Certainly, if you left for a weekend and you came back, you know, left Friday night and came back Monday morning, you, you got no problems, right? And if... If you want that kind of resiliency, most of the self-watering container-type gardens don't really have it. We can change that. There's ways to do that. I've seen people do something this simple. They get 10 buckets, or actually 20 buckets, one inside the other, making the grow buckets. And they get an 11th bucket, and they put them all on a level uh, surface. The last bucket is just a level-setting bucket. They put a float valve in that bucket. They plumb them all common, and they just... You know, plumb in pressure from a hose, basically, to one side of the system. That valve goes down, water starts flowing, it flows until the valve closes. Every time it goes down, it just keeps doing that. Since everything's on a common level and everything's plumbed together, all those buckets stay really nice. There's a lot of advantage there. And there's some things we can do with buckets that are kind of cool. If we're doing a big plant, like let's say one bucket, one pepper plant, well, we can cut a hole in the lid and set the lid on top of it and reduce evaporation, basically a, a, a form of plastic mulching, right? Um, it creates a barrier. We can easily lift that up and still add fertility and things to the mix. So there's a lot of good from self-watering planters, but I see them more as kind of like the back patio type situation, the getting your feet wet situation. Not really a great idea for large-scale production because even though they're cheap, you know, having to dedicate one bucket to one plant For anything sizable, a tomato, a pepper, etc., you, you get to where the larger container systems would, would pay back much quicker. The last one is in-ground beds. And these, in general, would look a lot like a typical raised bed. What we do to do these, and this is one of the things that makes them cost-effective, is we would dig a, a trench or a, a basin, uh, basically a pond below grade, and then we would fill that with EDPM liner. Something like, like you could, I guess you could do it with cement or something if you wanted to. But in general, we do these with pond liners. And we also create an overflow and inflow, all of that good stuff. And then we put, you know, we fill that with the media. We put a separation layer in there, like a geotech uh, uh, fabric or something like that. A shade cloth works good too. And uh, we just build a raised bed on top of it. Now, the advantage of this is all the water's held below ground. There's, there's some advantages there with temperature stability. Um, and it looks and acts like a typical raised bed. To me, the disadvantage of that is 
You know what? When I was 10 years old taking care of my grandfather's garden and I had to get down, you know, squatting in a squatting position uh, and, and sit there and pick, you know, 15, 20 cucumbers and then do the same thing and go cut a bunch of heads of broccoli and then go to the bean patch and squat down and do all that, it didn't bother me. I was little and I was flexible and young. Well, when I've gotten older, I don't like to spend as much time bent over. The next thing is by being down at that level, you know, you raise beds generally are a foot or less above grade, usually about six inches to eight inches. Well, you're right down there with the grass and the lawn and the weeds. And I'm not going to say that you never get any weeds in a raised bed that's, you know, sitting at 30 to 40 inches above the ground at its top level. What I'm going to say is the amount of weeds you get is extremely low. It's extremely limited. And with The soil being the way that it is and maintained in the constant state that it is, removing those weeds is, is literally like you, anything that does grow in there you don't want, it's a thumb and a forefinger and it just comes out. The roots just come out completely intact. So you get less weeds and it's easier to work a, a bed that's raised up about waist level. It also then keeps pets out. You don't have cats generally climbing two feet up to use a litter box in your garden or three feet up to use a litter box in your garden. Your dogs don't dig holes in it. If you have livestock like ducks or chickens, it's not that they can't get up there. They just tend not to from my experience. So I really like, for my personal choice, going with a raised, rigid container best. It just gives you complete control of the situation. Um, and if something breaks, it's easy to fix. If you have an in-ground raised bed and you get a, a hole in your pond liner and it leaks out, you basically have to tear the whole thing apart to fix it. If you got a leak in uh, a rigid container, which is unlikely, you can fix it with like water weld from JB Weld. Uh, I have had a, you know, a bulkhead separate on me and, and what have you before, and that can be a, a little bit more work to fix. But in most instances, some epoxy or silicon, since you can access underneath, you know, you have a, a, a much greater ability to service things. And with, uh, you know, facades and stuff, you can make them look very good. Uh, let's talk about flow through versus static wicking beds. I would never tell you do not build wicking beds unless you can make them flow through. Um, But if, if you said, I can do either one, I know it's more work to build a flow-through system, which one do you think I should build? I would say build a flow-through system. There is something rather magical that moving water does to plants. That Even if you're not doing aquaponics, I, I, I don't understand all the explanations for it, but I, I believe it has a great deal to do with oxygen. When we move water and it falls and rises and, and splashes, we put oxygen into it. Where if we have a static wicking bed, that water comes in with whatever oxygen it has, it gets used by the system, and you're going to end up fairly anaerobic in the bottom of the system. I have pulled apart systems that had run for two years on flow-through wicking beds, and you get a little faint bit of anaerobic aroma right at the separation point, but it's not heavy. I've pulled up wicking beds that were static, and you definitely have anaerobic water. There's just no doubt about it. By moving that through, we stay in aerobic conditions, and that's the best thing for our soil life. So I think that's one of the reasons it works. It also gives us the ability to distribute nutrient and things like that with the water movement itself. If we have a sump that we've put in somewhere, which is just simply a tank lower than the return lines so that the water will come back to them, and uh, we decide that we need some iron in our system, 
Well, especially if it's fishless. If it's just basically a flowing system of water with just, you know, I don't know, a 100-gallon tank that's covered so it, it doesn't get skanky, um, you know, with a piece of foam board over it or something like that, um, and we want iron in our system, we can literally do the math and say there's X amount of gallons, how much iron do we need, and we take an iron, chelated iron solution and just dump it in there. We can do that even with fish in a system, but we have to be a little bit more moderated with our use. So it allows us to take any specific nutrient. We can take, you know, a gallon of garret juice and just dump it in there. And it just goes everywhere. And it's going to be a time-released formula then because as it wicks up, it's slowly taking that nutrient up to the plant roots. Unlike a traditional aquaponics system or hydroponic system, we're doing ebb and flow or growing straight in the water. We're actually matriculating that nutrient through the soil levels. And we're not just feeding the plant, then we're feeding all the biological life in there. So... I prefer to go with a, a, a flow-through if you can do it. And there's some real advantages to going with flow-through. The chief among them is oxygen. By, by making a system a flow-through system, we are constantly adding oxygen to the water. Therefore, we're constantly adding oxygen to the system. Therefore, we end up with a lot less anaerobic components in the system. And, you know... Aerobic soil is what we're looking for to get the most benefit out of. So that's one of the real advantages. Another advantage, of course, if we design the system as a flow-through system, if it, later we want to add fish, aquaponics, aquatic components to it, it's really easy. It's set up and ready to go, and I've done enough on aquaponics, so I'll leave it at that for today. But it's that flow-through oxygenation that really helps. The other thing is, let's say I want to add minerals to a system. Let's say I look at my plants, and I think they're a little sad. Maybe they are... a a bit deficient in something like iron or calcium or what have you, well, I can just go to wherever my sump is, which is simply the lowest tank in the system that my pump resides in, and I can just dump it. You do the math and figure it out and dump in calcium or magnesium, a CalMag supplement or an iron-zinc supplement. Just dump it in, and it just goes through the whole system. And, there's, there's, and then when I do that, unlike directly applying it to the soil, which works fine, I'm creating a time capsule where that nutrient mineral is slowly coming up through the soil layers. So those are two of the big reasons. It's more complicated, though. A static system is dead simple. Let's go to the most simple static wicking bed, meaning the water doesn't move. It just fills up. So the, the simplest static wicking bed would be a self-watering container, you know, like a bucket system on your porch. But if we wanted to take that up bigger and we use something like a stock tank or what have you, Then we, we build our bed the way we've talked about. We have media on the bottom. We have a separation layer. We have media excluders. And we have a pipe that we put water into. And we just go out once every four days, once every week, depending on the time of the year and your climate and how much water needs you have, and you fill it up. And you fill it up till it overflows the overflow, which you know you're at your level that you want to be at, and you're good. And maybe twice a week you go water your garden. Nothing wrong with that. Now, what I found in doing it is it doesn't work as good as people seem to think. It's a lot easier for that soil mix to really dry out more than you'd want it to. And what you end up doing is top watering to rehydrate and reprime the soil if you let it go too long. So it really makes a lot of sense to go to a far more efficient uh, method. It's also dead simple, and that is simply that we put a float valve in the system. So we can take something like a $12 Flowmaster float valve for a toilet we can get from Home Depot or Lowe's, and we can put it into that tank and plumb a, a, a garden hose to it, whatever, and then it will just fill back up. 
if we have a place where we really don't want to run moving water, but we have garden hoses, we don't want to leave land on the ground at all, we could take something like a 90-gallon tough-made uh, wheelie cart from, from Lowe's, you know, a big garbage can, put a bulkhead in the bottom of it, and then tap in a hose bib to that. Put it up on some center blocks, fill it up with water. And, you know, then you've got a significant reservoir, and then that will just fill your system for you. It will, you know, it will, it will go to a float valve again, but we don't have to have plumbed water there. We can just fill that up as, as necessary. We can set up rain catch with IBCs and plumb those in with a float valve. There's like a million ways to do this, and none of them are wrong. And they all have various levels of simplicity. But if we plumb some source of water in that keeps that level constant, we get all of the advantages of a wicking bed, whereas if that water level fluctuates, eventually that soil does begin to dry out. So you're, you're better off designing it with some level of a float valve in it. And the cool thing is if we plumb, we could have 20 beds. And they don't have to be connected. They could all be freestanding with pretty little you know facades or fences around them or whatever. As long as they're all the same level, as long as we you know, put a, a level on the thing, we could have one float valve from one reservoir, whether it's a, a wellhead, whether it's city water, whether it's a... Uh, a couple IBCs, no matter what it is, and that one float valve will control the whole thing. So the static is dead simple. It doesn't have all the advantages, but if it was between doing a static wicking bed or a standard garden today, I would do a static wicking bed. Let's talk about some uh, keys to good design. Number one, use media excluders. Uh, I've seen so many people build uh, wicking beds, I myself included, that do, do not include using media excluders. The way I did them at first... I'd have that, that, that stand-up that set the level. It would just be a big pipe on a T with a whole bunch of holes drilled in it, like a perforated French drain pipe, basically. And you bury that in the rock, and you put all your, your, your separation, and then your dirt goes on top. Works until, you know, roots get down in there, what have you. And then, like, if you need to do anything, you can't get to it. What I went to is just a stand-up pipe. Usually I use one inch. Uh, the new system, pretty big system, I use one and a quarter inch. And that pipe, whatever level that pipe sits, that's your overflow height. So you set it at 8 inches. You're holding 8 inches of water. If you're doing that in a, a, a two-foot garden bed, well, you know, the good news there is that leaves you 16 inches of soil above, which is just great. If you got 2 inches of perlite, you're still at 14 inches. It's awesome. Awesome soil mix. But that means that that, that pipe is 16 inches below the surface. Well, if we take something like a four or six inch piece of cheap pipe and we slide it down over that pipe so there's an air gap there and you can look down and see your overflow pipe. Well, you're not going to have roots get up into that pipe and clog it up, are you? And let's say you decide, well, when I, when I plant my seeds, I don't want to put a mister in. I want to really keep the bed a lot wetter for uh, a while. Well, you know, you can bring the, the thing up four inches. You take a one inch straight coupler. And a couple inches of pipe attached to it, and you just set it on there nice and easy so it's easy to pull off. And you stick it in there, and all of a sudden you're holding more water, and you super hydrate your soil. And as soon as your, your, your seeds sprout, you just reach in there and pull it off, and water level goes back down. Really, really simple. And that becomes your overflow. So what most people do with a wicking bed is they'll drill a hole in the side of the container, and then that hole becomes the, the, the level, right? But if we're doing a flow-through... Or even if it's not a flow-through, even if it's static, if we're doing it with a stand-up pipe, we always control the level of the water. And we can do that by changing the pipe out, or if we have a discharge pipe, 
If we dry fit that, we can raise and lower the discharge pipe. And whatever the height of the discharge pipe is will be the height of the water in the tank. So using media excluders allows us to do all that work. Um, again, allow for overflow. If you don't allow for overflow, what will happen, you'll get a big rain event and all of your dirt will float up on top and go out the sides and turn into a muddy mess. So you have to have a way that water can get out of the system, even if it's not a flow-through system. Um, again, like I was saying earlier, make your overflow levels adjustable and serviceable. You want to be able to touch all the components. You want to be able to, you want to, be able to reach in there and take that stand-up pipe and maybe grab it with a pair of needle-nose vice grips and wiggle it and pop it right out of that bulkhead so the water drains all the way down. Or reach down to the, the little fitting that screws into the bulkhead and take it out and drain that last inch of water out of the tank. You want to be able to do that in case you need to do service work. Or you want to drain it for the wintertime. Um, mulch, 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 mulch. Right? Mulch. And when you're done mulching, mulch some more. Now, it really doesn't have to be that bad, but I like to either use hardwood chips or straw. And what I've been doing with my mulch this year, and it's really paid dividends, and it's a trick that I learned from an old lady in Jeff Lawton's Urban Permaculture video, is I'll take one of my, uh, my stock tanks and I'll fill it up with mulch. And then... Um, I will take a watering can and I'll put a couple ounces of liquid kelp in it. And I've actually started using garret juice too. She was the one that mentioned liquid kelp and that kind of switched me on the liquid kelp. And I'll, I'll, I'll watering can all over that mulch. And then I'll take a garden hose and I'll, I'll fill it till it's like sopping wet. And I'll let it sit there and suck up that garret juice and that liquid kelp into the mulch itself. So when I put the mulch down, it's nice and wet. And then I'll drain the excess water off of it, or if, if it's absorbed most of it, I won't. And I'll just start mulching with that. Because it's wet, it lays down beautifully for you. You know, It's not all dusty and getting away. But then it's a time capsule of that nutrient load, and you've kind of charged it up. And it actually is going to accelerate how quickly it breaks down, but that's good because it all goes into your soil. Uh, my formula that I've chose to, to go with is 6 to 8 inches of water and 12 to 18 inches of soil. Now, some of you say, well, but Jack... You have 50-gallon Rubbermaid tubs on some of your tanks that are set up as wicking, not ebb and flow beds. And you cannot have 12 to 18 inches of soil and 6 to 8 inches of water. And you're correct. And they are not optimal. They are where they are because a 2-foot tank on those systems would be too big. I'm actually looking at trying to figure out how I could maybe get rid of them and do other things with those tanks and go to a 2-foot deep tank where I can create some sort of an overflow system that will work for me. But the place I have those right now, they are suboptimal. One-foot deep beds make really great ebb and flow beds. Two-foot, and I'd say even 20 inches. 20 inches makes a damn good ebb and flow bed. 20 inches, 8 inches of material, you still got 14 inches of dirt, which is plenty. Most plants are going to send most of their roots into the area of 6 to 8 inches. We learned from Mel Bartholomew that you can grow just about anything in 6 inches of soil other than deep root vegetables. So um, that number of 20 to 24 inches is really an identical ideal container for your wicking bed. If it's deeper, then you can just bring your water up higher. If you were to come across some like 3-foot deep tanks from some salvage or something, you just want to sit, you know, then you're great. You don't have to elevate them. You set them on the ground. Well, then, you know, I would bring my water level in those up to more like 12 to 14 inches and then leave some head space on the top so that you don't have quite as much soil. And then you have room for your mulch and stuff like that. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. But ideally, 
six to eight inches of water, 12 to 18 inches of soil. And, and think of those more as minimums than, you know, than requirements. Uh, next, use a well-draining media. It, it, I don't even care if you're doing static. You want to be able to drain that system, or when there's a big rain of it, you want it to be able to drain itself. And things that have a lot of porous material in them, like lava rock, drain really well. It does cost more, but it's probably worth it. I've built them with river rock. I've built them with crushed limestone, which you shouldn't do because limestone's so alkaline or what have you. It doesn't really matter here because everything's alkaline anyway. It ain't going to be no more alkaline than it already is. Um, but lava rock is probably best. Definitely use scrap pipe, etc. in the bottom media. It makes you use less rock, but it also keeps channels open, that especially with a flow-through bed are really advantageous. Uh, I will do things like take a bunch of old one-inch, like whenever I wreck pipe out of a system, I never throw it away. Like if the ends are all tore up and all, I'll cut the ends off so it stacks nice or whatever, and I'll take a drill and drill a bunch of holes in it and throw that in the bottom of a wicking bed. Um, and a bunch of it. And that creates all these different channels and places for water to move. But it also creates all these little apartments and components for different beneficial bacteria to live. And it does take up a lot of space. And what's really a godsend is if you find like some old scrap pieces of like four inch drain pipe or something like that. Because it takes up so much space and it reduces the rock requirement a great deal. If the whole thing's lined with four inch old perforated drain pipe and you're going eight inches, you only really have four inches of rock and whatever matriculates down and around. And that gives you a great flow-through environment, or if you're static, it gives you a great drainage environment when you have a major rain event or something like that, or a malfunction. Um, developing and improving your fertility. I, one of the things I think that makes people get turned off on an idea that they try is it doesn't work the way that they expect it to work. Wicking beds solve the problem of irrigation. And they make fertility easy to maintain and improve and work and, and deal with. But they do not give you fertility. So I, I, I think one of the big problems with people that do a wicking bed is they get this great soil that they buy in a store. They build a wicking bed, and it works okay. And when they plant their next plant in it, because they think it's magic, they don't add any fertility And then what happens is the plants do really like luster. And if they go into a second season, all of a sudden there's all types of nutrient deficiencies and yellow leaves and stuff like that. If they get a pest cycle going and they don't figure out how to break it, now they have that and the pests are living right in the soil. We should be rotating our plants from bed to bed just like we do in a regular garden. We, we have to treat this soil gardening technique the same way we treat any other soil gardening technique. What we've changed is the method of irrigation, and on some level, the process by which we distribute nutrient. Because even if we put nutrient into the soil, just as water comes up in that soil, some water goes down in that soil, we will end up with some of that nutrient in the water, which will distribute and go systemic everywhere. So that's a good thing for fertility, but in of itself, it doesn't fix fertility. It doesn't make fertility. So I'm all about legumes. And legumes will fix some nitrogen, and there is some use to that. Every winter I plant peas. There's beans just because they're a vine crop. Any bed I throw some beans in, even if I'm not going to eat them. Scarlet runner beans are my favorite. Um, they actually can overwinter if they're mulched. Uh, they form a tuber that's perennial, uh, and they do provide some nitrogen. You ain't going to do all of it with legumes. You're going to be needing to add something. So I'm a big believer in compost, Worm castings, chicken-generated compost, 
Slow compost, fast. I don't care. I don't care. Compost, compost, compost. If you don't have chickens and you don't want to compost, just take all your uh, scraps and come up with a container of pretty flower pots on the throw all your scraps. And once a day, go out and pull your mulch back and just throw your scraps under there. That will help some. Uh, put worms in your system. We'll save thoughts on worms for the end of today's show. Uh, but worms and that together will be you know, fertilizing in place. But I am not the kind of person that tries to do everything without any outside inputs. Because outside inputs are cheap, readily available, they store well, so as a prepper, the fact that you have to buy them from somewhere else doesn't matter, and they are a huge bang for the buck. And I've come up with my four-part primary fertility program, and they're made up of the following. GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp, and you know, you buy a, a, a couple quarts of that and you're good for a year or more. Uh, a gallon of carrot juice lasts you a year, easy, easy, usually two years for most people. Um... Dr. Earth Premium Gold Fertilizer, I like, I like their liquid, but in my personal fertility program, since I'm using Garrett Juice as a liquid, as a drench and a foliar feed, I use the Dr. Earth Premium Gold Solid Fertilizer. It's a 4-4-4 fertilizer, so it's a completely balanced NPK ratio. It also has beneficial microorganisms and soil fungi uh, in the granules themselves. So every time we fertilize with it, we are also improving soil life. And there's other micronutrients in it. And then endo, mycorrhizae, fungal inoculation powder. And when I'm planting, like if I have a well-started plant, I'll dig that hole back that I'm going to put that plant into. And I'm putting it into what you would call a very spoiled condition. I'll take a, a big pinch of that Dr. Earth Premium Gold Fertilizer and I'll put it right in the hole. And then I'll take about a quarter of a teaspoon of that endo mycorrhizal fungi, maybe a half a teaspoon, and I'll sprinkle it. I'll hold the root ball over the hole. So some of it ends right on the roots and some of it goes down in the hole. I put the plant in the hole. I put the dirt back around it and tamp it in. I take another pinch of the Dr. Earth fertilizer and I sprinkle it around. And then I return the mulch. And even though this is a wicking bed, I water it in at that point. That way we get any air gaps out. We make sure the roots are nicely hydrated, that we've started kind of that siphon action of that wicking material into the plant root ball. So we don't have a dry ball sitting surrounded by moisture that takes a long time to help recover from transplant shock. But by watering it in, we've also then activated those mycorrhizal fungi. We've activated those microorganisms that are in the Dr. Earth. And we've started the catalyst reaction that, that moisture with that solid fertilizer starts to let nutrient out. And we start feeding the plant immediately so that it takes off. And when people say, well, when you do that, the plant does not get aggressive roots because everything it needs is right there, so it stays all weak. And my response to that is two words. The first one is bull. What do you think the second one is? Shit. It's bullshit. Because when you do that, that healthy plant starts increasing its top growth. And there's a funny thing about plants. Every time they add mass to their top growth, they add mass to their root ball. Every time they add mass to the root ball, they add mass to their top growth. And if you if you prune one side or the other, it will prune itself back on the other side till it balances out and starts growing again. Not all plants do this, but most plants will have relatively an equal amount of biomass above and below the ground. So people don't they don't provide fertility to the plant. Plant sits there all sad, yellow, and, and stunted, but it's going to get aggressive roots. How? It doesn't have any need to balance the root system. We feed it 
And it gets everything that it needs, and it goes, I am a badass little plant. And it starts growing. It gets some sun, and the roots are about the right temperature because there's always moisture there, and all the nutrients it needs are there, and it starts growing. And it, the, the top gets bigger. Well, what, the roots then expand. What do you think they're going to do? You go more dense and turn into a little, a little freaking uh, dwarf star or something? No, they start growing out. And when we do this with plants, if we get to a point where like that plant needs to come out of there, it's it's done its thing, and you go to pull that out, the roots you find, you know, if if what people say is true, we would never have problems with the roots getting into our pipes and stuff, right? Because they would just sit there because they're too well fertilized. That's not how nature works. So it, it's amazing what that'll do. So that's how I that's how I plant. Then a couple times a season, I will go through all my beds. I'll take that bag of Dr. Earth Fertilizer, and I just sprinkle it around like salt and pepper all around, pull the mulch back, sprinkle it down, put the mulch back on it. And I'll do that three or four times a season. Depending on how, if plants look really happy, I don't add any. You know, if they're really dark, deep green, I'm not touching them with, with that. They've got enough in the soil. The endomycorrhizal fungi at the beginning of a season. Not only will I do it into the plants, but I will I'll pull all the mulch off a of bed. Let's say it's 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 you know it's ready to start up for the year, and there's really nothing growing in it. And I you know I know we, do we don't want to till we don't want to till. I will take my hand as my tiller, and in, you know even a four by four bed like this, the soil's so soft, and I will just go about two inches down in the soil and just crumble it. And just break up that top layer of the soil. And then I'll just kind of rub my hand like a wax on, wax off, Daniel song from Karate Kid, and level that all back out. And then what, I, what I'll do is I'll take and I'll sprinkle that whole surface with that fungal inoculation, and I'll gently water it in. And then I'll plant it. Maybe today, maybe the next week. But I'll do that at the beginning of the season. That supercharges that fungal activity. And, and these mycorrhizal fungi attached to the roots of the plant and essentially become a larger root system and they have the ability to exchange micronutrients the plant can't do by itself. That's why my plants are so healthy. If you go look today, you know, we're in May and you can see my wicking beds in my aviary, what they look like. I took that picture this morning. It's pretty damn insane. It's like a jungle in there. And that's because they have this type of action going on. And people, again, people are like, well, you know, it's a lot of inputs. It's really not. Since that bed is contained, I don't need that much. You know, you're talking maybe two tablespoons that we do at that beginning thing. It's it, you know, just enough so there's a little bit everywhere and throw the mulch on it. And th that's the thing. It grows by itself. It's what it does. It starts reproducing. Um, the garret juice and the, li the, the liquid kelp, I kind of use those always together. I've gone, I have a big four-gallon backpack sprayer and stuff. It's just it's too much work to clean. It's too much work. I have a little half-gallon hand pump sprayer, you pump it up and it you know it has a little switch and psh, it sprays like a mist. And you know, I'll add about uh, two tablespoons of garret juice and one tablespoon of liquid kelp to that and I'll fill it up with water. And I just I go out either in the morning or the evening before the sun's up or when the sun's already heading down and I just spray the plants. I do that about once every two weeks in the spring for like the first six weeks and then I do it as needed. And then in the fall I start doing that again. I don't really do a lot of liquid uh, soil drench with the garret juice or the liquid kelp. Liquid kelp specifically is much more effective as a foliar feed where we actually spray it on the plant. I will probably twice a year mix up a good soil drench and do a soil drench with the garret juice. If I have a fishless system, I would dump at the beginning of the season, I just dump a gallon of garret juice right in the system. Just dump it right in, you know, uh, and, and you run off of that. 
If you're doing any kind of recirculating system, again, you could do that. Just a gallon of garret juice and a, I don't know, a quart of liquid kelp. It does amazing things for plants. If you do that with your fish, you'll probably kill your fish. So if you're doing a fish system, don't do that. Uh, but I have links to all four of these, these, these four pillars of my fertility cycle, and they're all in today's show notes. Now, let's talk about mineral supplementation. Um, there are certain things I do to supplement minerals and soil life that makes minerals available. I have two that I rely on when needed, and whenever I look at leaves and I start to see any, any form of chlorosis, which is where you start to see yellowing of the leaf, lack of vibrancy in the green or whatever, I will, I will go ahead and just use both of them because they're cheap. And I don't know what, I don't know if it's iron and zinc or calcium and magnesium, but I know it's probably one or two of the others since everything else is taken care of. And with wicking beds, this is not going to be that frequent that you need to worry about it. But the one I use for the calcium magnesium is made by a company called Hydro Organics, and it's called Earth Juice, CalMag. If you're going to supplement calcium or magnesium, you need to supplement calcium and magnesium. The plants cannot use either nutrient in absence of the other. And so all of the best quality stuff that's for hydroponics, aquaponics, direct soil drench, doesn't matter what it is, that's a calcium product for plant will also have magnesium and vice versa. There's the other twins that need, not twins, but cousins that need to be there together to be utilized, iron and zinc. I have a product called Liquinox Iron and Zinc. It's a chelated solution, which means it's immediately available to the plant. And I use those two as needed based on what the plants tell me. And I haven't touched, I have two bottles, I have one of each, so I have two bottles sitting on the shelf of this stuff in one of my cabinets in my garage. I haven't touched it in a year and a half. But it's there if I need it. Um, I will use it, and I haven't had to do this yet either this year. Of course, I've let some plants go. I probably should have used it on, on ebb and flow for aquaponics. When I do the, the, the misting with the garret juice and the, uh, the liquid kelp, I'll add a little bit of calcium, magnesium, iron, and zinc to the mister bottle and foliar feed that onto your ebb and flow beds. You shouldn't have much of a nutrient issue with trace minerals in wicking beds because you have so much soil life, soil activity, and things going on like that. Um, and especially if you'll do, use the other things that I recommend for this. Uh, two mineral supplements I recommend. One is called azomite, A-Z-O-M-I-T-E, and the other one's called green sand. Um, azomite is a light color. Green sand is a dark color. When it comes to rock dusts and things like that, you want to use one that's a light color and one that's a dark color. I could give you all kinds of explanations for it, but if you do that, you're going to have a very universal availability of minerals and nutrients. Green sand. I will put about four to six cups of green sand at the top of a wicking bed when I establish it. I'll get a big giant bag of it. I'll get you know a big four-cup scoop. I'll fill it up, and I'll sprinkle it around just like it's fertilizer with the fertilizer kind of working in the soil. Azomite in a, a big bed like that, I'll use like two cups of azomite. It's like a rock powder. It's very flour-like, very, very fine. Same thing, right at the top. I will probably never use either one of them again. That's a lot. Because, again, we got in a contained system. And all the worms and soil organisms and all are going to make that stuff bioavailable for a long time. It wouldn't hurt to do that once a year or once every other year. But if you do any of it, it's understand it's icing on the cake. It's not necessary. I have links to where you can take a look at azomite and green sand in the show notes. I have the hydroorganics, earth juice, CalMag, and the zinc chelated solution. All of the stuff, the garret juice, the liquid kelp, the Dr. Earth, the endomycorrhizal fungi, 
the the CalMag and the zinc and iron, they're very price competitive on Amazon. If you want to buy them, you can go through my links and you can find them and get exactly what I'm recommending. The green sand uh, and azomite, I have linked to Amazon. But in the show notes, right next to them, they say often best sourced locally. It's heavy and it's bulky, so shipping is expensive. So you can go get a you know a 50-pound bag of green sand and a 10-pound bag of azomite at your local garden store, pay no shipping on it because they obviously get all their stuff there in bulk, and you will come out ahead financially. So please don't actually buy that on Amazon unless you just can't get it where you are. And then the last thing that I like to use, and this is often best sourced locally as well, is dry molasses. I do use liquid molasses. I really like it. It helps feed soil organisms. But really, you know, I talked about doing that endomycorrhizal fungi at the beginning of the season. I'll take a couple cups of molasses and just sprinkle that around before you put that mulch on it. And you have just set up a system where you have created a spoiled condition for the plants. And I have actually had people tell me this when I've explained it or I've done workshops and showed how to do it. Well, that's not even fair. Of course your stuff grows. What? Like You're like, wait a minute. This isn't a video game with a cheat code. Your goal is to grow food, high-nutrient-dense food that's pest-resistant and doesn't take a lot of work. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And you ain't really cheating, you know? I mean, this is just basic common sense. And again, it sounds like a lot of input. It's not. Because if you take that out across 10 or 15 beds, the amount of food you're producing is ridiculous. And you're not using that much. I mean, you're talking about all of this stuff together you know, it would fit in a little trunk and be enough for two or three seasons. And, and that, that's how we stretch it, by making sure all the plants have what they need all the time. So we're not chasing problems. We're, we're creating a system where the problems don't occur. If the problems occur, it's a specific pest that we have to address. We could address that with a predator insect or a, a soap uh, solution or garlic pepper tea or something like that, which we'll save for another day. Um, last, I want to talk about worms. Um, I have a link to Uncle Jim's Worms Farm. It's a great place to get worms. There's two main worms that I've used in my system, night crawlers and red wigglers, or composting worms, or the red wigglers. What I have found is the red wigglers live really good in my ebb and flow beds because there's a constant fish manure kind of thing going on in there. It's a lot like compost, but I, they just kind of disappear in my soil beds. And it's because they're really a composting worm and they really want to live in compostable, you know, breaking down type stuff like a worm bin has in it. One of the things I think is a real cool idea you could do with your wicking beds is put a second four-inch piece of pipe in there with a bunch of perforations in it and throw stuff that you would compost into that pipe and put your earthworms in, or your, uh, your composting worms in there. They'll live in there. They'll ebb and flow their population based on how much you give them. As long as you have enough waste to feed enough worms, you can put one of those in every one of your beds, and you're supercharging everything, and you'll reduce your input requirements. Most people, though, probably don't have enough to feed them all if you have 10 beds or something like that. So they work better in aquaponics ebb and flow beds than I have seen them work for me in my soil beds. They kind of just disappear after a while. And I think it's because they eat enough, and they, they, they take what they want, and then they just stop reproducing. Now, what lives in my beds like crazy is good old-fashioned night crawlers. And I did put a link to Uncle Jim's Worm Farm, and that's great. You can buy a bunch of worms in bulk. Since I usually bring like one or two beds online at a time, so I'll work and I'll build two beds. I go down to Walmart. They have a little refrigerator in the, uh, in the uh, fishing section. And I go in there and I buy two 18-count packs of night crawlers. That's 
yeah, 36 worms, right? And they're like a dollar twenty-nine a pack. I take them home. I dump two in each bed. They crawl down in there and they start making new worms. Um, you can dig worms up out of your other beds. What I find though is I'm doing a lot of soil disturbance and messing around with roots and stuff like that. And it's it's you know three bucks a bed to add worms to it. If you do nothing once you have worms in your system, if you have an interconnected flow through system, worms will end up everywhere. If you do nothing, eventually you'll end up with worms in your system. I don't even know where they come from. We have people that have built aquaponics systems that are all ebb and flow, no wicking. They never put any worms in their system. One day they clean out a bed, there's giant earthworms crawling around in there. How they get there, I don't know, but they do. But worms are great. Worms do so many things. They aerate soil. They keep everything healthy. They, they eat organic matter and poop it out and create castings. And they help unclog and clear out clogs as well, especially if you do aquaponics in your ebb and flows. So definitely add earthworms to your systems. As I finish up today, I kind of want to start off or finish up where I started off. This is more work in the beginning, but it's less work forever. And it's one of the reasons people don't put in wicking beds or don't get involved with aquaponics or even fishless aquaponics or just flow through wicking beds that are in a fishless system, whatever you want to call it. Because they start looking and they go, oh man, this is hard, this is complicated, I don't get it, I don't understand. None of this is hard. And once you build one, you're like, oh, I see how this works. And you start looking around like you're driving through the country and you're looking around for containers you can buy from a farmer that'll work. You can do this with IBC. IBCs work great for this. You take an IBC, you chop it in half, you make two wicking beds out of it. You know, I mean, it's, it's great. Um, you know, and as long as it's food grade, you have to be, you, you know, if you're doing just wicking beds, you don't really care that there's sticky residue in there. I just fill it up with rocks and soil, it'll be fine. The worms will take care of it. Um, but it is more work and it is more money. You know, you have to put together a good soil mixture. So you, you're buying material. Uh, you do need a, a rock base and you're probably better off with lava rock. And it's not cheap. It's not expensive, but it's not cheap. Uh, you need some sort of plumbing. So those are fittings and fixtures and that costs money. And you, you look at it in this four foot bed costs a lot more than just putting a four foot square bed in the ground. There's no doubt about it. And it's more work and it takes more time. But once it's done, compared to running an in, you know, where every year you're coming out and you go, oh, I do no-till gardening, but you're out there with your shovel digging it up because everything's hard and compacted, you know, and, and then, you know, the, 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 the little wood frame rots eventually on you and that has to be rebuilt. And you're out there watering it all the time. You're out there weeding it all the time. Weeds are, you know, grasses, Bermuda grasses crawling up over the edge and getting into and infiltrating your garden. Um, the dog digs it up, the cat craps in it, all of this stuff. Your chickens get out and devour everything. I mean, I've seen so many problems like that for myself and for other people online, and I'm not saying not to do that. I'm just saying that's what you get when you do that. For the ease of installation and the low cost of installation, you get all of that stuff that you have to worry about doing deal with. When it comes to something like a wicking bed that's two and a half to three and a half feet off the ground, You're going to get almost no weeds. If you do water at all, you're going to be watering early in the season until your plants get roots down. And there's ways we can mitigate that. We talked about that today. We can raise the water level for a couple weeks. But with seed, if you do like if you're doing a lettuce bed, you might throw down seed. You might mist irrigate that for like the first week until all the things sprout. But I mean, other than that, you don't irrigate. All your fertility stays in the system. There's nowhere for it to go. It can't leach away. It's in the system. It leaches down into the water. It comes back up. 
Right? So, I mean, except for a major rain overflow event, you, you'd never lose whatever you put into the system. It's easy if you don't have to bend over. So, it's more work and more money up front, but it's less work and less cost forever. Because remember all those inputs we're talking about? Okay, if you're going to do in-the-ground gardening, you're going to use inputs as well. And let's say you even are going to make enough compost that you don't have to use, you know, Dr. Earth or, or you know, Garrett Juice or any of that stuff. Okay, well... How much compost do you have to make? How much mulching do you have to do? All of that's all that's easier. And think about mulching a garden bed on the ground and trying to spread things out and sitting there with a five-gallon bucket of mulch, looking over the edge of a three-foot-high wicking bed and just grabbing handfuls of it and putting your mulch in there. Think about harvesting. You grew green beans. You're sitting down on a bucket like I used to do on a little metal bucket and sit down on there like you're milking a goat pulling green beans off. Or you walk over and go, oh, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice. To me, it's just easier. And again, yes, all my wicking beds are incorporated into some form or another of aquaculture aquaponics. If I decided I didn't ever want to see a fish again for the rest of my life on my property, I would still be doing wicking beds. I would absolutely still be doing wicking beds, and this is the best thing that's ever happened to me here. This rocky, nasty, awful soil that, yeah, I can grow the hell out of trees in it, it, was, it, it wasn't even worth it. The reason I stopped trying to garden here, and some of you that follow me the whole way, man, I had huge gardens in Arlington and in Arkansas. I got here, I put a garden in, I hated my life. It was always hard. It was always work. It was always a problem. It was always something eating it. It was always dying. It was always calling my wife when I was away going, did you water? Did you water? Did you water? Right? To where she's like, I, stop bitching. I'll water when I get to it. And the plants are all dead. We'd go on vacation, we'd come back from a 10-day vacation, all the plants are dead, even though the person that the house sat for us tried to take care of it. Put in wicking beds, all of it went away. Never a problem. Even when there's a problem with the system as a whole, like if I have a pump, go, the wicking beds don't give a damn. They can go a week without caring. Almost no weeds, very low pest pressure, never hurt your back men and over, don't have to worry about irrigating, perfect soil all the time. I don't know what else you could want. No, it's not great for farming. If you're going to produce you know, an acre of corn, I can't see putting an acre of wicking bed in to produce an acre of corn. Some crops probably not the best for it, but you know what? When I get this, this next system done, and I've got 10 4 by 4 beds, I probably will grow one bed of sweet corn a year, just for the hell of it, just to show people, here you go, there it is. You know, um, It's just an awesome way to do individual crops, dedicated beds, polycultures, flowers, herbs, you name it. It works really great. If you can't tell, I'm kind of sold on it. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another show. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you enjoyed this show and other shows, then uh, you know I really hope that you uh, uh, consider supporting us in the work that we do. And uh, you can do that by doing your online shopping where? At a little website called tspaz.com. Just go to T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And when you go there, you'll see our Amazon deals of the day. You'll see all the items we've ever reviewed on Amazon. And as long as you go there before you shop online, you will help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do, no matter what you buy. Now, I do have items for review, all of them broken down by categories. Today we have a food item for you. It's a great prepper item. And we did kind of, you know, aquaponics did work its way into today's discussion. We talked about fish. Fish are an incredible protein source. And ocean fish are an incredible source of a very important uh, uh, fat called omega-3s. And the problem, though, is if we're eating large, and I mean, you should be getting some omega-3 a couple to three times a week every week. 
And again, one of the great places to get that omega-3 fatty acid is from ocean fish, cold water ocean fish. But if we're relying on things like mackerel that are high up in the food chain to get that omega-3s, we're also getting all the toxicity and mercury and things that are in the ocean today. Uh, tuna is another great fish for that. Now, I'm not going to say don't eat mackerel, don't eat tuna, don't eat these, these larger predator fish, but you should not be eating them two to three times a week, and most of us can't afford to uh, on, on top of it. Um, but, you know, there's something to eat a couple meals uh, a month of this type of fish, which is not enough omega-3. Sardines are the place to go for that omega-3. And I am a sardine connoisseur. I am actually what I would call a sardine snob. Those cheap-ass sardines that are in most uh, grocery stores, I, I understand why people have a bad opinion. of If I open a can of sardines and the first thing I think is that stinks like cat food, I'm not happy. So I went out on a quest a few years ago to find the best sardine that you could find in a can. And it, there's by a company called Matisse Glego. And I found out I'm not alone in being a sardine connoisseur. There's a lot of people that love sardines. And I found blog after blog after blog, all these different food blogs, of people saying they're reviewing the best-tasting uh, sardines they could find. And you know there'd be some differences of opinion, but one name was either number one or number two everywhere, and it was Matisse Gallego. So I went out and I ordered a couple cans of these things because they didn't have them at my local market. And they came and I was blown away. About three sardines to a can instead of like 20 of the little tiny minnows in there. These are nice big plump sardines. Head off, guts out, skin and bones intact, which is the way you really want a sardine to be. Packed, they are packed in, 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 in there's, here's the ingredients. It's salt, olive oil, sardines. That's it. No crap, no soybean, no, I mean, you have the most beautiful food in the world. Why are you going to ruin it? So they're packed basically in their own oil, salt, plus some olive oil. Taste fantastic. Now, they are a sardine. If you absolutely despise sardines, period, you probably won't like these. If you kind of sort of like sardines, you're going to love these. They're the best you'll ever get. You, I eat them a couple times a week. I really, My favorite way to eat them, I'll cut them up in little pieces, and I'll, I'll dice up like half of an avocado and some tomato, and I'll mix that together. And with the salt that's in there, you really don't need much more. A little sprinkle of pepper. Oh, man. Oh, man, are these things good. Check them out, Matisse Gallego Sardines. I have links to where you can get them by the 5-pack or the 25-pack. And by the way, they have a shelf life of like 8 to 10 years, depending on which shipment you get. So they're a great protein and fat for your storage pantry, but where you also eat what you store and store what you eat. I'll look at it this way. If you buy 25 of them and you only eat one pack a month, okay, at the end of two years you'll have one can left. By then you should have bought more to rotate your storage. And you still got six more years to get them eaten before they go out and expire. 200 plus, I remember exactly what it was, like 233 calories to the can, high quality protein, and the best fats on planet Earth, deep water ocean fish fat, and olive oil. Great product, great nutrition, and you can't grow sardines in your aquaponic system, so you got to get them from the ocean. And probably the best place to get sardines in the ocean for the top quality sardines is the northern sea off the coast of Portugal and Spain. Guess where Matisse Gallego sends its fishing fleet? Right there. Check them out. I think you'll like them. I do. And, uh, you know, give it a shot. If, uh, if you need to get more of those omega-3s in your diet, it's one of the best ways I know to do it. But no matter what you do, you can always support us by doing what? Your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. And our song of the day today is by Leonard Skinner. And it's All I Can Do Is Write About It. Now, there's so many iconic Leonard Skinner songs that were big hits that people think of when they hear the name. And... 
most people, if you said, you know, what's your favorite song, it'd be like Give Me Three Steps or Sweet Home Alabama or something like that. This is actually my favorite Leonard Skinner song. I think one of the things that really does is show their artistic ability. Really amazing sound to this song. But I also love the message of this song. This song really is about understanding how special small communities and communities that are close to nature, specifically in the South for, for Leonard Skinner, but in general are. And the dangers of letting the idea of progress destroy that special nature of small town connected to local natural resources. So it's kind of a perfect song for today's concept perfect song i think in general and that distinctive sound that couldn't be anybody but leonard skinnard and with that it's been jack spirko with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't well, this life that lived, took me everywhere there ain't no place i ain't never gone But it's kind of like the saying That you heard so many times Well, there just ain't no place like home Did you ever see a she-gator Protect her young Or fish in a river swimming free Did you ever see the beauty of the hills of Carolina Or the sweetness of the grass in Tennessee And Lord, I can't make any changes All I can do is write them in a song Just but I can see the concrete of Slowly creeping